James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, this has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What's the tone of this passage? What's the tone? Is it encouraging? Is it challenging? Is it happy? Is it sad? What's the tone? Have another look. I wonder what you think. Pretty challenging, I would say. Pretty challenging. Let's pray as we look at this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. 
And Lord, we want to treat it as such this morning, that it is a word from you that comes from your mouth to us. Help us to treat your word with reverence and fear, to tremble at it, that we might do as we've been told in James, put it into practice in our lives. Help us by your spirit now, we pray, as we seek to understand it. In Jesus' name. Amen. My brother, my little brother, who's 18 months younger than me, he's not littler than me, he's bigger than me, but uh, when we were little, uh, he used to do this thing where uh, in our parents' house we had this cupboard, which I'm sure that many parents have a cupboard which was full of biscuits. And uh, what he'd do is he'd take a chocolate biscuit, uh, normally a club biscuit, if you can remember those, and I think you can still get them. He'd unwrap the club really carefully, he'd eat the biscuit, and then he'd fold the untorn wrapper back up into the exact shape of the biscuit, put it back in the packet and back in the box. So then I'd come along, of course, I'd go to the box thinking, great, one left, that one's for me. And uh, then I'd pick it up and it would crumple in my hands and that would cue him laughing and me getting annoyed and going to find a different kind of club to whack him with. Everything about it said it was a club on the outside. It looked like a club. It was where you'd normally find clubs. It was in the club packet, in the club box, inside the club cupboard. But though it looked so much like it, inside, where it really mattered, there was nothing at all of any use to me. It was just the wrapping and none of the substance. In James's letter, he says to us that it is possible to have all the wrapping of the Christian faith, to look like a Christian, to sound like a Christian, to be found in places where you'd find Christians, like a church, like this one, but when it comes to it, to not really be a Christian at all. To be outwardly appearing as a Christian, but inwardly spiritually empty, or useless, or dead. James, the brother of Jesus, wants to wake us up to examine ourselves for the signs of spiritual life that are present in a true Christian believer. And in chapter one of this letter, in his introduction, James has begun to unpack that for us. And the first thing that he said, the first point that he made, is that when a true Christian is put under trial, they'll become more godly as they persevere through that trial, as they trust God through it. And then later on in chapter 1, in verses 17 and 18, James has reminded us that the Christian life begins when God the Father of his own will brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That is, a Christian is not someone who chose God, but someone chosen by God and then born again, brought forth through faith, through believing in the word of truth, That is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in that way that we become a child of our Heavenly Father. And James says that having been born again as a child of a Heavenly Father, the next sign of true spiritual life is that we begin to look like him in all things. We must now start to think like him, to speak like him, to act like him to become consistently like him. 
just like our big brother Jesus is. That's what normal Christian life looks like. But there's a problem. The problem James sees is this, that there are many people who claim to be Christian who are not like their Heavenly Father, who are not like Jesus. They're what he calls double-minded in chapter 1. They're what he calls friends of the world in chapter 4. That is, that they're seeking to have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. They're inconsistent in the Christian life, what we might call hypocrites. They have the wrapping of Christianity, but none of the true substance. And James loves these people, and he's writing to them, and what he wants for them and for us is to examine our hearts to see what's wrong, to wake up, repent, and return to wholehearted devotion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's just look at the text now then, verse 26 and 27. Just by the way, those are printed on the sheet for you. Um, We're trying to really encourage people to bring Bibles with them to church. We're not allowed to to have them out at the moment, Um, but uh, it's really helpful if we can have them just to see and the sort of before and after of this passage. Um, don't worry if you haven't done that today, but just in the future, that would be great. Verse 26 and 27. They're a transitional verse between James's introduction, chapter 1, and the main body of his letter in chapter 2, all the way through to the end, chapter 5. In these two verses, he introduces three main themes. These are the three themes that he's going to develop over the next four chapters. And there are three areas where this inconsistency of life is showing itself. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God's word, what he says, brings life and blessing to those who hear it. God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. He's the God who raised the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. And God is holy, absolutely pure and holy, unstained, And so James is saying, as children of your heavenly Father, you must become consistently like him, like Jesus, his son. Like him in your speech, theme one. Like him in your treatment of the needy among you, theme two. And like him in your personal holiness, theme three. And those three themes, they weave themselves throughout the rest of the letter, uh, in and out, Uh, as we go through. So just watch out for them as we get to each stage. You'll notice, though, as as the passage was read to you earlier, that the second theme is the one uh, that's majored on in this passage today. So let's turn to the first part of this challenge. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, we see that faith that plays favourites misses the gospel and violates God's law of love. The problem James picks out first is this. My brothers and sisters, 
show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That word translated partiality there, in verse 1, it means literally to judge according to face. That is to judge a person according to external things, to what someone presents as, and then playing favourites because of what you see there. Now let's be honest, we do this all the time, don't we? We instantly weigh up people according to their clothing, their jewellery, their tattoos, their accents, their skin colour. We make decisions in our minds about them when we learn what car they drive, the kind of house that they live in, where that house is in the city. We judge them according to what school their kids go to, to which university they went to or, or didn't go to, and according to the job that they have or don't have. We are judgmental in our hearts so often, aren't we? And this kind of attitude, James says, is utterly incompatible with true faith in Jesus Christ. And James gives us a wonderful illustration of, uh, that really helps us to see this attitude in ourselves. And it's there in, verses two, in chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. And the illustration runs a bit like this. Imagine that you are on the welcome team on Sunday morning and two guys come in. One man's dressed in a smart shirt and chinos, and he smells of aftershave. The other is in a tracksuit with holes in. He's wearing a Metallica T-shirt, and he smells of cigarettes. First man's clean-shaven. He has neat and tidy hair. He has a slim and muscular build. Second has scraggly beards, greasy long locks, and is decidedly overweight. When the first man introduces himself to you, you can tell that he comes from money, you can tell that he's been university educated. And when the second man speaks to you, you can barely understand what he's saying because his accent is so thick. And it's clear to you that the only school that he's been to is the school of hard knocks. Can you see these two men just in your mind's eye? James puts his finger on us and says... Which of those two men do you welcome more enthusiastically? Which of those do you honour in the attention that you pay to them? And which, if you're really honest, do you have doubts about and therefore dishonour? Now, when these verses were read, when you first read these verses, verses 2 to 7, I did what I expect most of you do. I thought, well, yeah, there are some people who are like this. Some people are judgmental like this, but not me. I can feel my heart justifying myself. I can feel my heart defending myself. Can I just ask us to feel the full force of what James is saying to us here? Because everyone, when confronted with verses like this, they say, of course it's wrong to judge on faith. Of course it is. But that's exactly James's point. What we say we believe to ourselves does not always match the reality of our hearts or indeed our actions. 
Could it be that you and I are the kind of people that James is referring to here? Just listen to the verdict on those who think this way. Verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, what's the antidote to this kind of attitude? The answer comes uh, in two parts. Do you remember, uh, used to be, I don't have these anymore, I don't see them around anymore, but you used to get these 3D glasses that had one lens that was green, I think, and one was red. And so you looked at this image, which you couldn't, just your normal eyesight, you, you couldn't tell what it was. But as soon as you put the glasses on, it leapt forwards at you. You could see it clearly. The answer James gives is a bit like that. In one lens, he has the gospel of Christ. And in the other lens, he has the law of Christ. And when we see through both of those lenses, we understand the picture. Listen to James's warmth as he begins with the first lens of the gospel in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God is no respecter of persons when it comes to salvation. He chooses people for his kingdom, not on the basis of their status or their wealth or their social standing, but simply because he loves them. Indeed, he loves the poor. Not just materially poor, but spiritually poor too. He loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them, that they may inherit his riches. One of the great summaries of the gospel in the New Testament is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, gave up the riches of heaven to become poor to die on a cross for our sins, having lost even the clothes on his back because he loved us that much. He did not treat us as we deserve. We had nothing to offer him, but in his grace, he's given us places of honor in his kingdom. Do you see how the lens of the gospel will transform our attitude in this area? Surely we who are poor, having been saved ourselves like this, must then also treat others who enter our church community with honour, equally with honour, whatever we feel they may have or not have to offer. That's the gospel antidote. The second part, though, the second lens with which James wants us to see is the law, the law of Christ. That's the second part of the antidote to this sin of partiality. We are to keep the law of Christ as we are in Christ. And he begins in verse 8 to show that the, the reason that partiality is so obnoxious to God is that it violates his law of love. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing well. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. James here is picking up on the teaching of Jesus that the law could be summed up in two commandments, love God and love your neighbour as yourself. And this royal law of Jesus, as James calls it, the law that he kept perfectly in his life, is the same law that in Christ, in him, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he wants us to keep in every part. It's not enough to say, well, I've not done this sin, or that sin against my neighbour, and therefore I've, I've covered all the bases, I've kept all of God's law. Just one area of sin left alone means that we're accountable for breaking all of God's law. James's point is that we must not be content with letting partiality exist in our lives and so deceive ourselves that really we're okay. What he wants for us is in verse 12. So speak and so act. You know, just say the consistency of life theme. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has been shown no mercy. Sorry, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy here means compassion for those who are in need. As we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he will assess how compassionate, how merciful we've been to our neighbours. All our neighbours, including and especially that poor man or woman that we have dishonoured in our hearts. Why will we be judged for that? Because he has shown such mercy to us. Now we must show such mercy to others. See, James here is hitting us with this pincer movement uh, as he seeks to win us over to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. From one side comes the gospel of Christ, which says that he was rich and became poor and brought you who were poor to riches in him. And on the other side comes the law of Christ, which says, love your neighbour as yourself or face judgment instead of mercy. Now, will we let this teaching change us I wonder. Okay, let's go to the final section. In the final section, verses 14 to 26, James takes us from this instance to the broader principle involved. So chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, we see true faith is evidenced by works of love to all. Now, I'd like you to imagine John... John is fictional, um, but imagine him. John's been listening to sermons online, and he's convicted that what he hears about Jesus is true. So he contacts us through the website, and he asks someone to give him a call, and you are asked to do that, to give him a call. And so you do, you call him and you chat to him. And it becomes clear in your conversation that John believes the gospel. He believes in God, he believes that Jesus Christ died for his sins, He believes that Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and that Jesus is coming back 
one day to bring in his kingdom. Great. That's exactly what we want John to believe. As a new believer, you encourage him to come to church on a Sunday to one of the services. You encourage him to join a small group. You suggest that he might like to think about serving, maybe the cleaning team or the welcome team. And to begin with, things go well, but as the weeks go past and then the months go past, you begin to stop hearing from John and seeing him again. So you're concerned for him and you call him up and John says this. Yeah, I still believe all that. My faith is strong. In fact, I'm really enjoying the teaching that we're getting at the moment. But, well, the reason I don't come is because I love sports. And you say, well, I train on a Tuesday night, so I can't go to small groups. And I watch it on Saturdays, so I can't really do the cleaning. And and Sunday mornings, well, actually, that's my only time to go for a really long run. And of course, now that I can access the talks online any time that I want, it's, it's really great that this fits around my schedule. Look, I know you've mentioned serving before, and, and I'd love to do, to do that. Really, I would, but at the moment, I just don't have the time. Anyway, I trust all is well with you. Of course, I'll be praying for you. Now, I wonder what you'd say to John. I wonder what James would say to John. Well, he's got some strong things to say. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Answer, no. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's pretty strong. More shocking still, a statement that's going to get our ears tingling is in verse 24, where we hear James say that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And again in verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now let's take a minute just to get our thinking right uh, on this. These statements might shock us, especially if we've got some knowledge of Paul's letters. Um, Example, Galatians chapter 2, Paul says there, we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. And so do we have a contradiction here? It sounds like that, doesn't it, as we first hear it? Do we have a contradiction? Well, people in the past have often thought so, but we know that the Scripture doesn't contradict itself. It all comes from the Spirit of God who tells no lies. How so, then? Well, you have to keep in mind the kind of people that Paul and James are addressing. Paul was addressing people who thought they were saved by their own good works. They thought they could merit their salvation. And he says, no, no, no. It's only by faith in Christ that you're saved. You cannot merit your salvation at all, not one bit. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Christ alone. And James would absolutely agree with Paul on that. But he has a different concern because he's writing to different people. He's seeing in the church that there are some who have a view of the Christian faith that many people have, which sees faith basically as a kind of head knowledge and perhaps some verbal profession. The kind of person who assents to the truth of the gospel, they believe it, they say all the right things about God, about the Bible, who sing the right songs, who read all the right books, but who never lift a finger to serve their brothers and sisters. That's who James has in his sights. And that kind of faith, says James, is not Christian faith at all. It's dead, useless. This kind of dead faith is no use to others. It doesn't serve them at all. And neither is it of any use to God. He says that this kind of faith is is the kind of faith that demons have. Demons' doctrine is excellent. They know full well who... Jesus is and what he did on the cross. And if you read through Mark's gospel when the demons speak, they often get it right, don't they, about who Jesus is. But they don't act in obedience to God, in obedience to God's will. And so that knowledge just leaves them in terror. They shudder. No, James says, you can't divorce faith from works. Good works are not the cause of salvation, We're saved by faith alone. But true saving faith is never alone. I will show you my faith by my works, he says. True saving faith is always evidenced by works of love. The way James rounds off his argument is to prove that this has always been how it is in the story of God's people. He gives two examples from the Old Testament in the last uh, of these verses, Abraham and Rahab. Now, nothing's by accident. Notice how carefully he picks these two examples. There are loads of examples that he could have chosen, but he picks these two. Why does he do that? Who is Abraham? Abraham is a wealthy, respectable older man And who is Rahab? Rahab is a woman. She's also a prostitute. Why does he choose these two? Well, it's because they cover the whole range of the kinds of people that you might find in a church. James is saying that the kind of living faith that God, the faith in action that God really wants for his people is possible for anyone, irrespective of where they start from in society. These two polar opposite people have the same quality of faith. They have both proved that their faith is living by their good works. As we draw to a close, let me just ask you a question. How has this challenged you this morning? Well, I've been looking at this for a little while now. It's challenged me in two ways. First, if James looked at my life, would he see the kind of judgmental attitude 
that he's describing here? Would he see me playing favorites? If he looked at our church, would he see it in the way that we treat one another? Now, the kind of church that we are in, the kind of culture and place that we're in, means that this certainly must be a danger for us. Perhaps more so than for other churches in other places at other times. We need to look honestly at our own hearts and see if the gospel and the law of Jesus, the law of love, has really transformed our lives in this area. That's the first challenge. Second big challenge is this. If James looked at my life, would he see a life full of good gestures but little action? Now, it struck me that in a world where it's possible to have church online, where you would never see anyone physically, it's never been easier to believe the right things and say the right things, but never actually do anything to serve the needs of those in the church community. It's never been easier. It's never been easier, perhaps, to have our faith and our works divorced. So if James looked at my life, would he see lots of good talk, but little action? Some big things for us to think about. And I know that as I've gone through this, I know that I've been preaching to myself as much as to anyone here. And so we need the Lord's help. And so let's come to him and pray. Heavenly Father, it is our desire to be children of you, to be like you in the way we think, in the way we, the attitudes that we hold, in the way that we love one another, in the way that we care for those in need. Change us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, by the words of truth, by the knowledge of the gospel and the law. Change our hearts so that we might be consistently like you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.